So lately, one of the things I've been thinking about really is how challenging it is to be a parent. I have four kids. Every kid is different, and you have to tailor your parenting based on each kid's aptitude. And it's so interesting to me how different each kid is. I have a daughter who's 11. I have a son who's nine. I have a daughter who's six and a daughter who's four. And my son is so much different. My son who's nine is so much different than my daughter who's 11. And I keep wondering with my son, when is common sense going to kick in? Right, he's my only boy. He's my oldest son, so I'm wondering at what point does he develop common sense? With the girls, it comes when they're four or five years old. And he has a hard time keeping the rules. We, we do partial homeschooling. And it could take Travis till 6.30... 7 o'clock each day to finish his homeschooling. Right, and you can sit him down and you can say, Travis, here's 25 math problems. You sit in this chair. Don't get out. No matter what, don't get out of this chair until these 25 problems are done. Do you understand me, Travis? To look up, yes, Dad, I'm not getting out of this chair. Literally four minutes later, you'll look over. Where is Travis? I just told you, sit at the chair. And you'll look outside, he'll be running around in circles in the backyard without his shirt on. And he'll take his shirt off anywhere. Doesn't care. And my son is also quick to anger. He gets upset really easy. He can go from zero to ten that quick. But he has a tender heart. He's someone who will easily ask for forgiveness. And I contrast that with my daughter Naomi, who's 11. Her homeschool days, she could be done at 1.30, no problem. She'll sit in that chair until everything is done. When I go to the parent-teacher conference, you sit down, you look at her report card, straight A's. On the behavior marks, the highest marks. You sit down, you talk to the teacher, she goes, well, nothing really to talk about with Naomi. You know, little things around the edges here. We spend a lot more time talking about Travis at the parent-teacher conferences. But because she can easily comply with the rules, because she has this self-discipline, I think it's a little harder for her to admit her sin. Now, I personally think 
that Satan lives in the back of my minivan. Okay, I can load up all the kids in the minivan, all four of them. You put Travis and Naomi in the back seat. I get in. I'm feeling good. Everything's going lovely. Roll out the driveway. By the time I get to Roscoe, all hell has broken loose back there. And you hear Travis, Naomi! Stop it, Naomi! Stop looking at me! And he'll hit her. And then they're screaming and crying and all this stuff. And I think, why do I have to deal with this? And sometimes I say, I'm turning this bad boy around. Turn the minivan around. I go home. I'll start with Travis. Travis, come into my room. And I'll talk to Travis. I'll say, Travis, what happened in the back of the minivan? I'll say, well, Dad, Naomi looked at me like this. Really? Okay. And how did that make you feel? He goes, I felt really angry. I was angry. And, and, and why were you angry, Travis? Because I don't want her to look at me. I don't want her to, to bother me. And I know why she's doing it. I know she's doing it to bother me. I'll say, okay. I'll say, what was the result of your anger, Travis? He'll say, I lashed out in anger. I sinned against my sister. Okay. Is that what God desires of you? No. God doesn't want me to be a hot-tempered man. He wants me to be slow to anger. And I'll say, what's the problem, Travis? I'll say, my heart's broken. See, he gets to that point to where he knows that he needs Jesus. Now, that same situation, then I'll take Naomi into the room. Naomi, what happened? I don't know. He just exploded. Well, did you look at him any way to provoke something? Well, I just kind of glanced like this out the other side of the window because there was something out there. Really? You mean there was nothing in your heart that took a little bit of joy in provoking your brother to anger? No. And I'll get frustrated, right? It's like, I know, I know what you were doing. And it'll take 25 minutes, 30 minutes where she can get to this point to where she'll say, okay, I was trying to provoke him a little bit. And sadly, I think that that's a picture of what happens in the church. You see, there are those that know that they're broken. They confess their sin easily. They know that they can't keep the rules. And then there are those who are disciplined. They can hold everything together and on the outside it looks like everything is perfect. And you wind up worshiping really your own moral performance. You don't really need a savior when you're in that situation. See, I love the parable in Luke 18. When Jesus illustrates the difference between the Pharisee 
that person who's resting on their moral performance compared to the person who has a true faith in Jesus. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you were to look at this Pharisee on the outside, just to watch his life, what would you have thought? He's not extorting anyone? He's just in his dealings with others? Dude, he's not committing adultery? He's faithful in his marriage? He's fasting twice a week. And he's giving tithes of everything that he gets. Dude, I'm sure this man was praying to God. I'm sure he was worshiping God. And he probably even looked to God as his helper. As his teacher and as his example. But deep down, when you peel back the layers, what is the Pharisee really worshiping? He's worshiping his moral performance. He's worshiping his own ability to be disciplined, to keep the rules. But the tax collector, he knows he can't keep the rules. He can't even look up to God. And he beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me. See, the difference between the two is the tax collector knows that he needs God's mercy Why the Pharisee doesn't know that he needs God's mercy. And that tax collector, he's the one who's justified before God. He knows that if you have this faith that's on the rock, if it's on Jesus, you're justified before God. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Yet we know that a person... I'll read in, I'll read in English, read in Spanish. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you believe 
that no one will be justified by works of the law. What are you resting your faith on this morning? That's the question I want you to think about. And each of us who are following after Christ, we can have a tendency to move off of the rock. In our own flesh, we can have this desire to try to work for it. To try to please God. To try to create our own kingdom. And I find I constantly struggle with that. I've been realizing lately that even within my own household, I try to establish my kingdom. And let me share with you what some of the rules are in my kingdom. In my kingdom, my children give me respect at all times. At the dinner table, it should be quiet and peaceful. My children shouldn't burst out in anger with each other and get upset. We should have dinner on time every day at 6 o'clock. We should treat each other with respect. And I found when those things don't happen, when things don't go right, I get so irritated. I get angry. Because they're breaking my rules. They're breaking my law. They're wrecking my kingdom. When I have to turn that minivan around, I'm usually pissed off. I'm upset. Because i got to turn around because I'm not going to get to that point where I need to get in time. And when I create my kingdom, when I'm getting upset because they're not keeping my rules, dude, I've forgotten about God's grace. I've forgotten about this abounding grace that Jesus Christ has given me. And I shouldn't be upset at my children or upset at my wife because they can't keep my rules. When my children are disobedient, my heart should break because they're not following God's law, not my law. And when I expect moral performance from my children, I'm creating Pharisees. And that's the last thing I want to do. Let me read to you a list of characteristics of the person who is religious or self-righteous compared to somebody who has their faith rooted in Jesus and in the gospel. The moral person believes I obey, therefore I am accepted. The one who understands the gospel says I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. Do you notice the difference in motivation there? The moral person says, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's critical that I think about myself as a good person. Threats to my self-image must be destroyed at all costs. You have to destroy threats to your self-image because that's what you believe is going to get you into heaven. 
porque eso va, vamos a llegar al cielo. The believer says when I'm criticized, I may struggle. I may struggle a lot. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. The self-righteous or the moral person Self-view swings between two sides. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel very confident. But then I'm prone to be unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel humble, not confident. I feel like a failure. The person with a faith rooted in Jesus says, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I'm both sinful and lost, yet I'm accepted in Christ. I'm so bad that he had to die for me. I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. Where do you land on that spectrum this morning? Now, when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, there was a great crowd there. Right? All these people had gathered, his followers. And in that crowd, there were Pharisees. There were the religious. There were those who saw Jesus as a helper. But they were really worshiping their own moral performance. And how does Jesus address the self-righteousness? He starts by going back to the law. Six times in chapter 5 of Matthew, he goes, it was said or it was written. And he knows that his audience knows the law. They knew what was written in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read three of them, but he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable for judgment. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, if I'm a Pharisee, if my faith is resting on my moral performance, and I know the law, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And for me personally, I look at this, do not murder. I have never murdered anyone. Check, nailed that one. I've been married 14 years. I have never committed adultery. Check, nailed that one. It says here, whoever divorces his wife, let her give her a certificate of divorce. I have never 
divorced my wife. Oh. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. I can easily stub my nose or point my bony finger of condemnation at those who have gotten a divorce, with those who have committed adultery. I know the law, I'm doing pretty good. How does Jesus address those people in the crowd after he goes back and he recites the law? Well, he starts by giving them really the full interpretation of the law. In verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And here's the full interpretation. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And here's the full interpretation. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I want to just clarify something here. When Jesus is talking about lust, lust is this desire to have or to get what's not yours. And when men lust after women, usually it's a physical lust. Right? You're desiring to have a physical relationship. And I don't think women necessarily, maybe some do, struggle the same way that men do with lust. I've asked Bonnie about that before, and she's like, ew, that's disgusting. But women can also lust emotionally. Right? You can see another relationship and desire. I wish he was my husband. I wish I had a relationship like that. Or you watch a movie with this wonderful emotional relationship and you desire in your heart to have that. Now, I would not like to acknowledge anyone who has never been angry with a brother or sister. Right, we know that you're basically guilty of murder. Or if you've never had a single lustful thought in your life, you're not guilty of adultery, please stand up. I would like for you to stand up. Nobody's standing. Not one of you. So you're trying to tell me we're all murderers, we're all adulterers? You see, what Jesus was doing on the sermon is he's saying, no, no, you think the standard's here. You think this is where you need to be. And some of you can jump over that. And you can feel good about yourself. No, 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 no. That's not the standard. My standard's up here. And there's not one of you. Not one of you. No matter how disciplined you are. No matter how well you can keep it together. No matter how much strength you have. That can keep my standard. Apart from me, you're all going to hell. And that's what Jesus is doing as he's giving the full interpretation of the law. He's condemning everyone. 
We're all at the same level. Dude, we're all broken. Every one of us. Every one of us needs a Savior, needs Jesus Christ. You see, we need to be like that tax collector who beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me. Because that's the one who goes away justified before God. We have to place our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone because we cannot keep the law. Now, what does it look like if you really believe in Jesus? If you understand that it's the work on the cross and it's His grace that allows you to have a relationship with Him. And when you understand that, you know what, I am justified before God. What that means is he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. Well, in verses 5, 29 through 30, he tells us how a believer should respond to sin. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Is he really saying we should gouge out our eye if we lust? Or we should cut off our hand if we physically express our lust? You see, if I look at a woman, a woman and I'm lusting after her, for her, and I gouge out my right eye, is that going to fix my heart? It's not. By the way, I still have my left eye to look at her. So then I should gouge out my left eye. Now I'm blind. But guess what? I can still think about her. I can still have these lustful thoughts that are in my heart. You see, the right signifies the best. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I think the eye, when Jesus is talking about the eye, he's talking about the internal. Right? Things come in through the eye. The hand, I think, cutting off the hand, he's talking about the external, the external expression of sin. And what he's saying is take drastic measures. Take drastic measures to deal with the sin in your life. Take drastic measures to deal with what's going on internally. The eye. Take drastic measures to deal with what's going on externally, the expression of the sin. And notice that the action taken is the same for both the internal sin and the external. Both involve gouging and cutting off. Right? Both of them require drastic measures to be taken. We can't address one without the other. You see, the Pharisee will deal with the hand. He'll deal with the external. But that's not what God desires. God desires for you to deal with both. 
What drastic steps have you taken in your life to not sin? For me, one thing that I have taken drastic measures to do at work is I don't develop any relationships with women. Although I'm a funny, attractive guy, you know, I don't talk to women. I just don't. More than half my work is women. I have young interns coming in, working for me. And I'm not so prideful to think that I couldn't fall in that area. I don't drive in the car with a woman alone. I don't travel with a woman. I'm probably not allowed to do this, but most of my audit teams are all guys. Because I want to take those measures to not sin. So what about you? If you're struggling with pornography, are you willing to not be in a room with electronic devices when you're alone? Or if you're struggling with greed, are you willing to let people see your finances and help ask questions about what you're doing? You see, we have to be willing to deal with our sin. We have to be willing to take drastic measures. But it has to be for the right motivation. Because if you're doing it to earn your way to heaven, if you're doing it for moral performance, or even if you're doing it to satisfy the church, because you think, oh, the church doesn't like this, so I'm not going to do it. It's for the wrong reasons. It's not for the right reason. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And they had promised a year earlier this church that they were going to give this massive gift to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And now they're starting to wane. Paul's getting a little bit nervous that they're not going to give this gift that they once promised to give. And Paul's an apostle. Or he probably could have said, you know, based on the authority that I have, I'm commanding you to give this gift to the church in Jerusalem. But how does Paul encourage him? Dude, he reminds them of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He said, Remember the grace of Jesus? Remember how he became poor so that you could have everlasting life? Remember that? Let that be your motivation to give. Let that be your motivation to not sin. We know the grace of Jesus. And because of his grace, because of his sacrifice for us, that should motivate us to want to obey his law. And not because we have to obey it for eternal life. 
but because we love Jesus. What are you struggling with this morning? Is your marriage a mess? Do you know you have lust in your heart? Are you struggling with anger? Self-righteousness? Whatever it is, let the gospel in. Do you let it touch your heart? Be willing to do whatever it takes to move past that. One of the things I've noticed um, in my marriage with Bonnie where it seems like I personally have been stuck for 15 years, 14 years in a cycle. Then it usually works like this. Bonnie will say something to me. And I perceive her saying it in a mean way. I get offended. I think she's not speaking to me in a respectful way. And for those of you who know Bonnie, she can be direct. And I could take that in a wrong way. And my knee-jerk reaction is to respond right back in a sinful way. And then we spiral into a massive argument. And I always go back to, well, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't get angry. I wouldn't sin if only you would treat me right. That's the problem here. It's you, not me. It happens over and over and over again. And because I love my wife, because I care for her, I want to move past that. I want to be able to respond the way Jesus responds. Because I care for her. Not because I want her to do something for me. Because I want to earn something from her. That's how it should be with sin in our life. It's because we love Jesus. We want to, we want to please him. We want to move past what he's calling us to move past. So pray for me in that area, if you can remember. And the sad thing is, or the realization that I've come to, is that there is suffering involved in our faith. You will suffer as you follow Jesus. You will suffer as you kill off your flesh. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll read in English and Spanish. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Right? He says, arm yourself with the same attitude as Christ. 
whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, there's suffering involved. And it's not pretty to walk around with a gouged out eye or a hand that's cut off or a foot that's missing. It's actually embarrassing a little bit. If I struggle with less and I've gouged out my eye and you see me walking around with a patch, Nima is inevitably going to say, hey Trent, why do you got a patch on your eye? And I'm going to have to say, well, I had to gouge it out, man. I was struggling with lust. It's out there for everybody to see. Are you willing to go there? One of my best friends from college, we both got married about the same time right after college. And after he'd been married about 12 years, you know, we had occasionally gone to the kids' birthday parties and different get-togethers, and you get this wonderful Christmas letter every year that'd be like eight pages long and talk about how wonderful everything was and all these accomplishments and things like that. One day he just called me and said, hey, I'm in the area. Would you, would you like to meet me for lunch? It's okay. It's kind of weird that he just called me because he lives all the way in South Orange County. Right? So we go to lunch and he says, Trent, I wanted to tell you first, I'm going to divorce my wife. Really? I thought everything was great. No, no, it's been really bad actually since we first got married. And just not satisfied with her. I'm not happy with her. You know, I know God wants me to be happy. Really? So I started asking questions. And I asked him. Have you ever struggled with pornography? He goes, yeah, well, actually, you know, ever since we first got married, I've been, I've been, but that's not impacting my relationship with my wife. I can, I can, I can keep that separate. I said, really? You see, this sin started internally. It was going on in his heart, and now it's getting ready to work its way out into the hand, right? Physical consequence of his sin, he's going to divorce his wife. I said, you need to tell your church. You need to share with those in your community group what is going on. Things can't be going down in flames around you without you raising your hand. You have to be willing to gouge out your eye. And sadly, he wasn't willing to do that. Now, I want to make one thing clear. I think there's people who struggle with the same sin their entire life. And you may never fully overcome that sin. Even though I think you can. But Paul says, those who are saved are led by the Spirit of God. 
Right? When you're led by the Spirit of God, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't want to sin. You don't like your sin because it doesn't please God. And I'd like to ask you this morning, are there areas in your life where you've given up? Where you've thrown in the towel? Where you knowingly sin and you just don't care anymore? My question to you this morning is this. Do you know him? Do you really, really know him? Because if you don't really know Jesus, if your faith really isn't on this firm foundation, this rock, you're on your way to hell. In Matthew 5, verse 30, near the end, he says, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So how would you describe your relationship with God? This is something I learned from Matt, but if you were to ask me how my relationship with Bonnie is, and I, and I were to say, it's going pretty good. Last night we went to dinner. We talked for 45 minutes. We went swimming in the pool. And then we went to bed. Really doesn't tell you anything about my relationship with her, does it? It doesn't. If, but if you were to ask me, how's my relationship with Bonnie? And I'd say, you know, I feel pretty close to her right now. We've been fighting a little bit lately. You know, and I'm trying to work on these things, and I, I feel like we're going closer. You can tell I have a relationship with her. There's something there. How do you describe your relationship with God? Because it's based on performance. If it's just based on the things that you're doing, you need to move out of that dangerous place. You need to move off of the sand, back onto the rock, back onto the saving faith in Jesus alone. One of my friends had been struggling with alcoholism secretly for 10 15, I'm not even sure how, how, long, how long it has been. And he's sinning inwardly, right? Getting drunk, doing these things. Nobody really knowing what's going on. And then a little while ago, he couldn't keep it in anymore. His wife caught him drinking. The church found out. Right, the light was let in. And when we were talking to him, initially, he was talking about all these things that he was going to do to change. I'm going to do this. 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 He said, well, how's your relationship with Jesus? Well, I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do all of these things more. And I thought, whoa, what a scary place to be in. 
because he's not really broken. Doesn't really recognize his need for a relationship with Jesus. Sure enough, 30 days later, his wife caught him drinking again. And after that, I went, I met him for lunch, and we talked about it. And I asked him again, how's your relationship with Jesus? He basically said the same thing. I thought, wow, man, this is a dangerous place to be. Recently, I met him again. How's it going? He says, you know what? I'm abiding in Jesus. I'm spending more time with Jesus. I feel like I'm getting actually closer to Jesus for the first time in my entire life. And he said, and you know what? I still struggle with desiring alcohol, but it's not as strong. It's not as present. And that's what it should look like with sin. Don't fight it directly. Run to Jesus. Spend time with him. Get to know him. And your struggle with sin is still going to be there. But he's going to give you the strength to overcome. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically looks across the crowd and he divides them. He puts people into two categories. There's no third category. Either you're one who has built your house on the rock, who has this strong foundation, or you're somebody who's built your house on the sand. That's it. Either you're on the rock or you're on the sand. And he says, one day the river's going to rise and it's going to test that foundation. And the house that's on the sand is going to collapse. What say you? Where is your foundation? If it's on the sand, cry out to Jesus. Let others know you can't do this alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, Father. God, thank you that you have done the work for us. Thank you that you came and you died for our sins, Father. And because of your grace, we can have a relationship with you, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to reflect you, Lord. Show us those areas in our lives, God, that you want us to change in, where you want us to move past, Father. God, we can't do it in our own strength, Lord. We need you. God, I pray that we would encourage one another as a body, Lord, that we would cheer each other on, Father, that we would realize that we're in this race together. In your name we pray. Amen.